0: Amen. Amen. The great commission of Christ. What is it? And how should we set out to accomplish the mission that we've been given? Now for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the great commission of Christ it refers to the instructions that Jesus presented to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. And while it's true that the instructions of the great commission are fairly straightforward, It's also true that 83% of those who claim to believe in Jesus don't really know what the Great Commission is. 83% of those who claim to be Christians couldn't describe what the commission of Christ Jesus is. And and not only that, but they, they have no clue about how we should go about accomplishing The commission that every Christian has been given. And with that being the case, it's my prayer that every Christian here at Calvary South Austin will know what the Great Commission is. And not only that, but it's my hope that we will also begin to understand how we should accomplish the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. Here in our text today, we find Luke, he's reminding his audience about the commission. That was given to John the Baptist. And as we consider the way that John accomplished the commission that he was given, we're also going to see how his example can help us to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that John the Baptist uh, is not only the greatest prophet ever born of women, uh, but he also provides us with this excellent example of what it looks like. To accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. And as you're making your way to the third chapter of Luke's gospel account, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Luke first introduced us to the story of John uh, back in chapter 1. It's there in chapter 1 where we learned about the day when the angel Gabriel presented uh, uh, an elderly priest named Zacharias with a prophetic promise. And it was a promise that pointed to the day uh, when his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. Not only that, but uh, Gabriel also informed Zacharias that his son would go before the Messiah in the power of Elijah. And with all of this context in mind, let's pick up our study of John's story. If you would look with me here at Luke chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Luke writes, now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eteria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, right there in Texas. <laughs> and while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, Uh, Here in these verses, we find Luke, he's presenting us with six historical reference points, each of which are designed to help us to pin down the precise period of time when John the Baptist began to prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah. If you would notice with me again, uh, we want to look at the first historic reference. There in verse one, Luke tells us that John's ministry began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. According to one expert, Tiberius became Caesar of the Roman Empire on August 19th, 14 AD. And based on this one detail, we can see that John was called to the ministry in the 15th year of his reign, uh, which many scholars believe is the 29th year of the first century. And then Luke not only provides us with this timestamp by identifying uh, the year of Tiberius' reign in which John received the word of God, uh, but he also provides us with a list of those who were serving as Roman rulers at the time when John began to baptize. Notice again there in the middle of verse 1. There again we learn that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Not only that, but we also learn that Herod was the Tetrarch, which is the regional governor of Galilee. His brother Philip, he was the regional governor over its area, as well as uh, Trachonitis. And then Licinius was the regional governor over an area called Abilene. Here we see that that there's a way to, to examine the time period that Luke here is referring to. He provides us with a political time stamp. Uh, so that we can narrow down exactly what he's talking about. And after providing us with a political timestamp, Luke then provides us with a priestly timestamp by pointing to the religious leaders there in Israel. It's actually there in verse 2 where Luke tells us that the word of God came to John while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. I like the way that the scholars who gave us the English Standard Bible rendered verse 2. They put it like this. <clears throat> During the high priesthood, Of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, according to the the Jewish historian named Josephus, Caiaphas was high priest over Israel from 18 to 36 AD. It's a pretty narrow window of time. It's also interesting to note that the family tomb of Caiaphas was accidentally uncovered there in Israel back in 1990 during the construction of a water theme park, uh, you know, of all things. Uh, But uh, but that's when they ever uncovered this tomb uh, of Caiaphas as well as his family, and so we know that this is a person who actually existed in history. This isn't just these aren't just fictional names that someone made up along the way. But as we consider all of these historical data points there should be no doubt in our minds that the prophetic word of God came to John at some point in time uh, during the reign of Annas, which is 18 to 36 AD. And as we take into consideration also the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, many scholars conclude that Luke is actually referring to a very narrow margin of time between 27 and 29 AD when the word of God came to John the Baptist. And while we might wonder, well, why didn't Luke just simply state the exact date? well, we can rejoice in knowing that he gave us so much more than that. He didn't just give us a date, which would be arbitrary, you know, to the culture that we might live in. I mean, how could, how could Luke even guess, you know, how we would count time even at this period of time, right? And, and so rather than pro- providing us with, you know, some arbitrary number that meant something to him at that point in time, but maybe not to people in the future, he instead provides us with all of these historic data points to help us pinpoint the area of time when John the Baptist received the word of God. He did this by identifying those who were occupying positions. Positions of power at that point in time. And not only did Luke provide us with the historical context of John's ministerial calling, but he also provides us with the specific instructions of his commission. And if you wouldn't notice with me again there in verse three, here Luke tells us that he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In light of this, we can see that John was directed to go and preach a specific message at a specific time in a specific area to a specific group of people. And he was sent to preach this message so that the children of Israel might receive the remission of sins through repentance. I like the way that Paul elaborated on the ministry of John. is actually in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. That's where Paul declares, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. John came preaching Christ Jesus. And he pointed to a repentance that would lead into a relationship with Christ Jesus. John wasn't preaching salvation through water baptism. There are many who get this confused. Many think that John the Baptist was saving people with water. And that's not the case. He wasn't preaching a message of water baptism for salvation. No, instead he was calling the Israelites to come and get baptized as an act of revealing the repentance that has already taken place in the hearts of those who realize that they must be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And while it's true that John was calling people to be baptized in water in order to demonstrate their repentance, it's also important to realize that John's baptism of repentance had less to do with water and it had more to do with the change of mind that occurs when a person truly repents. In order to explain what I mean by this, I want to take a moment to consider the meaning of the word repentance. This is a word that causes much confusion amongst Christians, and one reason why is because uh, we oftentimes fail to identify the difference between repentance and the fruits of repentance. Repentance is not the same as the fruits of repentance. The fruits of repentance, this refers to the change of life that takes place once a person has mentally repented. You see, the word repentance simply means change of mind. The word repentance simply means change of mind. And it's a change of mind that takes place within the heart of those who recognize that we can't work our way to heaven. You see, most people think they can. Most people think that they're good enough, that their works are sufficient. And with that, we need to repent. We need to change our mind and recognize, no. Our best works are filthy rags. We need to change our mind. We need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, once a person experiences the change of mind, which is repentance, then we can begin to experience the changed life, which is the fruits of repentance. When our minds change, then our life changes. When we change our mind, the change of mind results in the fruits of repentance. The fruits of repentance begin to manifest in the lives of those who truly repent. And what this means then is that John the Baptist was commissioned to go and preach repentance so that the children of Israel might change their minds about their righteous standing before God. You see, the Israelite, they truly believed that they were right before God because they were the descendants of Abraham. You know, they thought that they're, they're right with God because hey, we're the we're the offspring of Abraham, and, and Abraham was right with God, therefore we are right with God. Also, they also believed that they were righteous before God because they were keepers of the law. They weren't keepers of the law; they were law breakers, just like all of us. But they truly believed that the Messiah would show up and exalt the nation of Israel above every other nation uh, because they were somehow better than everyone else. This was a common concept in the mind of the first century Israelites. Therefore, John was sent to preach the message of repentance. He was sent to say, change your mind. Change the way you're thinking about all of this. John was sent to preach the message of repentance so that they might change their self-righteous minds By humbling themselves. Matthew confirms this in the third chapter of his gospel account. There Matthew tells us that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. He didn't say John the Baptist came baptizing, though he did. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John called people to repent. Or in other words, he challenged them to change their minds because the kingdom of God was already upon them. And for the sake of clarity, he was telling them to change their minds about their need for the remission of sins. That word remission found there in Luke 3, verse 3. That word remission is translated from a Greek word which speaks of the judicial pardon that results in forgiveness. When you see the word remission, you can just think forgiveness. John was challenging the Israelites to repent by changing their minds about their need For forgiveness. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered Luke 3, verse 3. Here's how they put it. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. That's much clearer, isn't it? In light of this translation, we can see that John set out to accomplish his commission by first calling every Israelite to repent by changing their mind. And much like John, uh, every Christian has now been commissioned to preach the message of repentance so that every sinner might receive the remission of sins by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice Of our Savior Jesus Christ. In order to prove my point, I'd like you to turn to the final chapter of Luke's Gospel account. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24, where we find the Lord Jesus presenting the apostles with the Great Commission. And so hold your place here in Luke 3. We'll come back to it. Turn to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel account. And as you make your way to Luke chapter 24, I want to point out that we find here our resurrected Savior presenting his apostles with final instructions just before ascending into heaven. And it's here in this final chapter of Luke's gospel account where we find Jesus. He's presenting us with the great commission, which is accomplished by Christians who actually go out and preach the message of repentance. But this has the focus. If you would look with me here at Luke chapter 24, we'll begin reading at verse 46. Here, Jesus directs his disciples by declaring, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And notice that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Here in these verses, we learn that the great commission of the Lord Jesus, it, it, it begins with this, uh, this focus on the cross of Christ, his burial and his resurrection on the third day. And with this message in mind, we are, to, we are called to go out and preach repentance. Change your mind about who can get you into heaven. The Christian who wants to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus, we must begin by challenging people to change their minds about their need for forgiveness. You see, most people think that they're good enough to enter the gates of heaven by their own good works. And we must convince them that they need to change their mind and trust in the cross of Christ because it's there at the cross where Jesus Christ Satisfied the righteous requirement of God the Father on our behalf. We must go out with the message of repentance for the remission of sins so that sinners might trust in the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. And while it's true that we accomplish the Great Commission by first preaching repentance, it's also true that we accomplish the Great Commission by preparing acceptance. Now, in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to the third chapter of Luke's gospel account, and let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 3. I want to begin reading once again at verse 3. Here we learn that John went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, here in these verses we find Luke, he's helping his audience to understand that John the Baptist was the prophet, who was called to accomplish the prophecy that Isaiah presented in Isaiah chapter 40. This Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 40, well, it points to the day when a prophet would begin to prepare the path for the Messiah. And the imagery of this prophecy, it seems to be based on the ancient practice of sending out the road crew before the king. You know, the king would go out and go visit, you know, uh, the towns that were under his sovereign control. but, But the road crew would go first. And the road crew would prepare the path. You see, you don't want the king riding in a carriage on a road filled with potholes. That's just uncomfortable. And so, so the, the road crew would go out and prepare the path for the king. Well, John was sent out to prepare the way for the Messiah, but he wasn't sent out to fix roads. No, he was sent out to fix hearts. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the hearts of the people so that they might accept their Savior. With this in mind, look with me again there in the middle of verse 4. Here we learn that John was called to prepare the way of the Lord by making his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth. Now, I've been to Israel, and I can assure you that there are still mountains, there are still valleys, there are still crooked roads. John didn't fix all of that. And the reason why is because he wasn't sent to actually take mountains and destroy them and fill in the valleys. As we take a closer look at this prophecy, it's important to understand John's not preparing roads, he's preparing hearts. And with that being the case, I'd like to suggest that the the people who are in the valley, the hearts of those who are in the valley, this kind of describes those people who are depressed, those who are filled with regrets and remorse. The hearts of those who are described here as mountains, well, these are those who have lifted themselves up on high with pride. The crooked places, well, these are the people who have given themselves over to their perverse desires. And the rough places, well, these are the people who have hardened their hearts against the Lord. Now, in light of these comparisons, we can see then that John was sent to prepare the hearts of every person regardless of where they found themselves. He was sent to encourage those who were filled with remorse and regret, those who were so depressed thinking that God could never forgive them because of the sins that they had committed. And he was sent to rebuke those who were exalting themselves so that uh, those who were these mountainous people filled with pride might humble themselves and bring themselves low so that they could accept the Lord. John was sent to challenge those who were given over to their perversions by challenging them to repent of their crooked ways, so that they might walk in the freedom of faith. And he was sent to soften the hearts of those who had allowed a, a callousness to cover their conscience, so that they might be saved by faith. Simply put, John was sent to prepare the hearts of every Israelite. Regardless of what they were struggling with, regardless of their reason for why they were rejecting Jesus Christ, he was sent to prepare their hearts so that they might accept our Savior by faith, so that they might be able to see the salvation of God. In similar fashion, we too have been called to accomplish the Great Commission by preparing the hearts of every person so that they too might see the salvation of God. And listen, one of the best ways for us to help people accept our Savior is, is to find out why they're rejecting him. And I, and I get it. There's lots of great evangelistic programs, you know, Way of the Master and Evangelism Explosion, and, and the people that typically gravitate towards one or the other are just kind of like, this is it. This is the one size fits all. This is the golden key that will unlock the heart of every person. No, they're good, but it, it's not one message, you know, that will uh, change the heart of every person. Of course, the gospel message is the one message we preach. But in preparation for them to receive the gospel message, we have to meet them where they are. We have to find out why they're rejecting the gospel. We have to find out, is this a person who's exalted themselves because they're so proud, or are they so regretful and remorseful that they can't even think that God would ever forgive them? Some people are in the valley of despair because they don't think that God will ever forgive them. Others are just filled with pride because they think they're good enough to get into heaven. Some are just crooked because they love their perversions. and, And regardless of where a person is at, We need to take the time to address their objections so that they can accept our Savior and believe the gospel message. I like the way that Jude puts it in his epistle. It's Jude 1, verses 22 and 23, where he declares, on some, have compassion, making a distinction, on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Christian, listen. Some people need to hear about the compassionate love of the Lord. Some people are so depressed, they need to hear Jesus loves you. But then there are some people who are so filled with pride that if you say, hey, Jesus loves you, yeah, so what, who cares? I love me more. They're they're too proud to, to care that Jesus loves them and what they need is a word of rebuke. They need to be challenged. Saving them with fear, pulling them out of the fire. We need to meet people where they are. We need to find out what their objections are so that we can help them to accept our Savior Jesus. Let's accomplish the great commission of Jesus by following the example of John. Let's go and prepare the hearts of each person. Let's take the valley people and bring them up. Let's take the the, the mountainous people and bring them low. Let's take the perverted people and straighten out their path. Let's meet them where they are according to their issues and according to their objections. And in this way, We can prepare them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so we see then that Christians, we ought to accomplish the Great Commission by first preaching repentance. We should also accomplish the Great Commission by preparing acceptance. The third example that we find in John's approach, well, it helps us to see that we accomplish the Great Commission by protesting innocence. Now, what do I mean, protest innocence? Well, with this as our focus, let's continue to make our way through the third chapter of Luke's gospel account. I want to pick up there at verse 7. Here we learn that John said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So encouraging. And even now, verse 9. The axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now here in these verses we find John, he's challenging the multitudes who came out to be baptized in the Jordan River. He wasn't providing a way for everyone to just come and be comfortable in their sin. And as long as he has a megachurch ministry, he's going to be just fine. And and so he doesn't want to challenge people too much because he doesn't want to scare anybody. No, no. Calls some brood of vipers he says hey your your lineage it matters nothing and as we consider the way that he challenged them it's important for us to remember that the water baptism of john was actually intended to, to be a demonstration of repentance well how do you know if the person coming to be water baptized has truly repented John wanted to make sure that those who were coming out to be baptized in the Jordan River were truly repentant converts who understood their need for forgiveness. And he did this by first protesting their perceived innocence. He wanted to protest the perceived innocence of those who were possibly still struggling with self-righteousness. You see, if you tell a repentant person you're a sinner and you need forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the repentant person says, I know, while the proud will say, how dare you? Paul described the problem of self-righteousness amongst the Israelites in Romans chapter 10. It's there where he declares, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, according to Paul, there were many Israelites there in the first century who who were failing to receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And the reason why it's due to the fact that they believed that they were already innocent They believed that they were innocent because of their bloodline through Abraham, and they believed that they were innocent because they saw themselves as keepers of the law. And it's for this reason that John the Baptist rebuked them. He didn't just let them come out and be baptized. No, he rebuked them for believing that their Abrahamic bloodline made them right with God. He rebuked them for thinking that their attempt to keep the law was making them righteous through works. Rather than bolstering their belief, John protested their alleged innocence by comparing the self-righteous Israelites to a fruit tree that fails to produce good fruit. Let's consider again how the prophet put it here in Luke chapter 3. Look with me there at verse 8. Here John declares, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, based on this, we can see that John was not about to let these people go through the religious motions as so many do here in the 21st century church. Oh, you want to get baptized? Come on up. You know, you want want to raise a hand in the middle of a service and and, and say a little prayer and, and think you're okay now? Let's do that, you know, let's, let's check the, the box so we can say, well, you know, 100 people got converted. And, and, and the church has created this easy believism that, 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 that there's no challenge of a changed life. And John wasn't about to let these people go through the religious motions. He certainly wasn't going to allow them to become phony followers just so that he could fill the pews. He wasn't just trying to have a mega ministry with nominal believers. No one said he protested their self-righteous belief that they were already innocent in the eyes of God so that the truly repentant people would come forward and get baptized. In this way, he accomplished his calling by challenging the children of Israel to bear fruits that demonstrated a true heart of repentance. And this reminds me of something that Paul proclaimed in Romans chapter 3. In Romans three, where he assured his audience that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he didn't say some. He didn't say you know most. All have sinned. We're all guilty of sinning against the God of glory. And if that offends you, you need to repent. Those who think that they're already good enough to get into heaven are essentially insisting they're innocent. And knowing that the world is filled with self righteous people who believe that their good works are enough, I encourage every Christian to accomplish the Great Commission by protesting innocence, the innocence of those who are self righteous. In light of John's example, Christians should accomplish the Great Commission by preaching repentance, by Preparing acceptance and by protesting innocence. Fourthly, uh, John helps us to see that we accomplish the Great Commission by providing guidance. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's uh, continue to make our way through the third chapter of John's Gospel account, or I'm sorry, Luke's Gospel account here. If you would uh, look with me there, beginning at verse 10. Here we learn that the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Here in these verses, we find those who had received John's baptism. Now asking for further guidance. They wanted to know what they were supposed to do now that they had been baptized. Okay, John, we've received this baptism, we've shown our repentance, now what? And in response to their request for guidance, John began to guide them. He began to challenge them to continue bearing fruits worthy of repentance, and he challenged them to become believers who were living a life that was truly pleasing to the Lord, and John provided the people with godly guidance, and he did this by helping them to understand how our faith in Jesus should result in a changed life. Let's take a closer look at the guidance that he's providing here. Look with me again there at verse 11, where John declares, he answered and said to him, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. I don't know if that would still be a tunic. It might be a one-nick at that point in time, but if you have two tunics and give one away, then you have a one-nick, right? Anyway. I'm bad at math. So then he says that he who has food, let him do likewise. Share your food, share your clothing, share what you have. Be generous. Generosity is a fruit of repentance. Then in verses 12 and 13, he challenges the tax collectors who came to be baptized. He he tells them to stop using their position of power for personal gain. You see, that's what many of the tax collectors did back then. They they would take more than they were supposed to and, and keep the excess. In verse 14, he challenges the military men who were baptized to stop abusing their power through intimidation. And just to sum it all up, John was accomplishing his commission by providing godly guidance to those who were truly repentant. He was providing discipleship. In light of his example, it's important for us to remember that the Lord has also called every Christian to accomplish the great commission by providing godly guidance for those who repent. And in order to prove my point, let's take a moment to consider Matthew's account of Christ's great commission. If you would hold your place here in the gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 28. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 28 and here in the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel account where we find the risen Lord he's providing further guidance for the believers who were there to receive the great commission of Christ Jesus just before his ascension into heaven with this as our focus if you would look with me there at Matthew chapter 28 I want to draw your attention to verse 18 there here we learn that Jesus came and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, notice, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. Here In these verses, we learn that the great commission of Christ Jesus is not only about evangelism, Christ's commission also includes a discipleship directive by which the seasoned saints of the Lord begin to provide godly guidance so that every believer can understand how we are to continue bearing the fruits of repentance. So for this reason, I encourage every Christian to receive The godly guidance of doctrinal discipleship and to continue receiving discipleship until we too become believers who are able to provide godly guidance to those who enter into our own sphere of influence. We should be disciples so that we can become disciplers. So we see then that Christians should accomplish the Great Commission by preaching repentance, by preparing acceptance, by protesting innocence, and by providing guidance. Furthermore, Christians should accomplish the Great Commission by presenting consequence. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to the third chapter of Luke's gospel account. And let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Here Luke writes, Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Now here in these verses, Luke tells us that it was during these days uh, as, as As John was engaging in his ministry, it was that same period of time when the Israelites were in expectation. They were expecting the arrival of the Messiah. There were many Israelites who were looking for the arrival of the Messiah at this period of time, and one reason why. Well, it's based on the prophecy found in Genesis chapter 49. It's there in Genesis 49 where Jacob declares to uh, his son Judah, he says, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah." nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, the tribe of Judah would be in in charge of the nation in a governmental way. Judah would rule over the nation of Israel until the arrival of Shiloh, which is a messianic title. And so Judah would be in charge of the uh, children of Israel uh, in a government sense, until the arrival of the Messiah. And, and, and seeing how the Romans had removed Judah's right to rule over the nation of Israel just before the first century, uh, the people there in Israel were anxious about this prophecy. They were expecting the arrival of the Christ at this period of time because the scepter had departed from Judah. And so they were wondering, where's Shiloh? Where's the Messiah? Well, he was there. He was there. But they began to wonder if John was the one they were expecting. And it's for this reason that John immediately distinguishes himself from the Messiah by insisting, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose." It's in the first chapter of John's gospel account where we find the religious leaders from Jerusalem coming and asking John, who are you? They wanted to know, "Who, who do you claim to be? And to that, John the Baptist said with all clarity, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed saying, I am not the Christ. John never claimed to be the Christ, and he knew that there was one coming after him, one mightier than him, uh, who is the Christ. And so he presented a distinction between him and the Messiah, and one way that he did this was describing the difference between his baptism and the baptism of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, uh, look with me again there at verse 16. Here again, John answers, saying to all, indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in order to grasp what John is saying here, I should first point out that the word baptize, the the word uh, baptize is translated from a Greek word which refers to immersion or submersion. And and so, you know, if, if you see the word baptize and you automatically think water, it's not completely correct. The word baptized simply means immersion or submersion. So you have to look for the qualifier and ask uh, what's, what's, what, you know, what's being baptized into or, or what, what are you being immersed or submerged into? And in light of this, we could render verse 16 in this way. John says, I indeed submerge you into water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will completely immerse you In the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, the water baptism of John is entirely different from the baptisms that Jesus would offer. Jesus confirms this in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where he declares, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Different qualifier. John baptized into water, Jesus baptizes into the Holy Spirit. It'll help you to remember that. Uh, It's in Acts 1 there where Jesus is talking about the day of Pentecost. He's saying, hey, wait in Jerusalem until this baptism happens, right? And so that was when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the disciples of Christ. Now, uh, since then, the Lord Jesus baptizes every believer with the Holy Spirit at the very moment of our faith. And the Holy Spirit continues to empower us as we move forward in faith. At that same moment, at the at the point in time of conversion, when the born again believer is is baptized by the Spirit into the mystical body of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, and while this helps us to better understand our baptism into the Spirit, uh, we should ask, well, what is this baptism into fire? With this question of mind, if you would look with me there, beginning at verse sixteen. Here again, John is telling us about uh, uh, the baptisms of Jesus and then provides further information. And so if you would look with me uh, again at verse 16 where John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And notice verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Here in this verse, we find John, he's now elaborating on the baptism into fire. And he helps his audience to understand that those who reject the cross of Jesus Christ will eventually be completely immersed in everlasting fire. This, of course, is a reference to the fires of hell where every unbeliever will receive the consequence of their sinful decision. Now, as we consider the way that John presented this consequence of everlasting punishment, the unquenchable fire which will uh, consume those who end up suffering in the torment of hell forevermore, he simultaneously provides us with an example of the way that we too should accomplish the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. And in order to prove my point, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. It's there where he assured his audience that every unbeliever will go away into everlasting punishment while the righteous will enjoy eternal life. These are the consequences of our decision regarding Jesus Christ. These are the consequences. Those who trust in Jesus Christ will be baptized in the Spirit. That's the consequence of trusting in Jesus, sealed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise. Those who reject Jesus Christ will suffer the consequence of their rejection, and they will be cast, baptized, if you will, in eternal fire. Listen, Jesus had no problem presenting people with the consequences of our decisions. He had no problem speaking on the topic of hell because he wanted to warn people about the consequence of their rejection. Now, there are many in our day and age who are quick to insist that a good and loving God would never send anyone to hell. And with that being the case, it's our job to remind them that those who end up in the lake of fire, those who end up baptized in everlasting fire, they're there by their own choosing. Those who end up in hell aren't there because God wanted them to go to hell. Those who end up in hell are there because they rejected the only way to escape hell jesus christ is the only way to escape hell faith in jesus christ is the only way that we can escape the punishment that we deserve and if you want to escape the consequences that you deserve for all of your sin trust in jesus christ but if you reject jesus then don't be surprised when the consequence of your decision is eternal torment in the fires of hell What this means is that the Christian who wants to accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ, well, we must present unbelievers with the consequence of that decision to reject Jesus. And so we see then that Christians have been called to accomplish the great commission by preaching repentance, by preparing acceptance, by protesting innocence, by providing guidance, and by presenting consequence. Finally, Christians ought to accomplish the great commission of Christ with persevering patience and in order to prove my point let's continue to make our way through the third chapter of Luke's gospel account I want to pick up our study beginning there at verse 18 here Luke declares and with many other exhortations he preached to the people but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias his brother's wife and for all the evils which Herod had done also added this above all that he shut John up in prison Here in these verses, we learn about the day when uh, John the Baptist was put in prison. But before we we get to that, I just want to point out there in verse 18, where we learn that he uh, exhorted uh, people as he preached to to them. With many other exhortations, he preached to the people. That word exhortations found in verse 18, it's translated from a Greek word, which refers to the instructions that bring comfort and encouragement, as well as admonition. We aren't provided with the details of those public proclamations by which he encouraged people. But what we do know is that the spirit of God was leading John to proclaim the truth of God's words so that they might repent and receive by faith the remission of sins. As a result, though, John the Baptist ended up being persecuted. He was persecuted because he exhorted the people in the ways that he did He was persecuted by those who were offended by the word of God. For example, he was rebuked by the scribes. He was ridiculed by the Pharisees. He was rejected by the elders as well as the chief priests of Israel. Not only that, but Luke also tells us here that Herod the Tetrarch placed John in prison. And the reason why is because John had challenged uh, all of his sinful ways. He had rebuked Herod uh, for being the wicked man that he was and challenged him about the sinful relationship that he had with his brother's wife. He was living in sexual perversion and John didn't hesitate to call him out on it. Well, it's in Matthew chapter 14 where we learn that Herodias was so offended by the preaching of John that she arranged for his death by sending her daughter and we won't get into all the gory details but used her daughter to go and ask Herod for the head of John the Baptist to be delivered to her on a platter and so that's what he did. He beheaded John and delivered the head of John the Baptist to his wife and to her daughter. In light of this story, we can see that those who set out to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus will end up suffering the persecution of those who hate the truth of God's word. And much like Herod and Herodias, uh, there are many in the world today who are ready to persecute the people of God. We see the church being persecuted in in, in just horrific ways all around the world. and, And we're beginning to see that begin here in America as well. People are ready to persecute those who proclaim the truth of God's word, and the reason why is due to the fact that that they can't stand those who speak out against the sexual perversions that they love so much. They can't stand it when believers speak out against sin and, and proclaim the truth of God's word and tell people to repent and, and trust in Jesus Christ. It offends them. And the world is filled with people who are offended by the message of the cross. And the reason why is because the message of the cross is an offense to those who are opposed to Jesus Christ. And it's sad to say that the persecution of Christians is becoming more and more common. We're beginning to watch America turn into this cancel culture filled with people who are proud to attack the Christian who wants to accomplish the Great Commission. As a result, more and more Christians are beginning to hide their faith for fear of persecution. Well, I can't talk about Jesus at work or else I might get fired. I can't talk about Jesus with my family because they might reject me. I can't talk about Jesus with my friends because they might not hang out with me anymore. And, and, and we, we're becoming more and more fearful about this cancel culture that we live in. And if this sounds like something you struggle with, I encourage every Christian to remember what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's there where he assured Pastor Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have a just wonderful life for the rest of their time. No. He says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will. You will suffer persecution if you decide to live godly in Christ Jesus. Because listen, if you decide to live godly in Christ Jesus, then what this also means is that you're going to go out and accomplish the Great Commission. It's synonymous. The Christian who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will simultaneously commit their lives to accomplishing the Great Commission. Are you? Are you accomplishing the Great Commission or are you too afraid of the cancel culture? Are you too afraid of getting doxed? Are you too afraid of being ridiculed? Are you too afraid of being fired? If so, I encourage you, let's follow in the footsteps of John by persevering every persecution with the endurance of patience. As we begin to wrap up this message, I'd like to just sum it all up. In a very simple way. What is the Great Commission? Well, Christ Jesus has commissioned us. He's sent us on a mission. It's a commission. This is the mission that we are called to that every Christian is to preach the message of the cross beginning with repentance so that sinners might receive the remission of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I encourage every Christian to accomplish this calling by following the example of John the Baptist, who went and accomplished his mission. And with this as our goal, let's accomplish the Great Commission by preaching repentance, by preparing acceptance, by protesting innocence, by providing guidance, by presenting consequence, and by most certainly persevering with patience in this way we will accomplish the great commission of the christ who commanded us go and make disciples of all the nations and we should do this by preaching the repentance and and remission of sins in the name of jesus christ and and, and as we consider that command i'd like to point out as i always do this is not the great suggestion it is the great commission Jesus did not say, go if you feel like it. Go if it fits your schedule. Go if it's comfortable for you. Go unless you're going to lose your job. No. It's a command to go and make disciples. Every believer has been called, commanded, to accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian, let's obey the command of Christ Jesus who has commanded every Christian to go. Go and accomplish his great commission. Let's pray.